Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Tonight is our second installment of what we call our Legacy Series. The Legacy Series will honor those individuals that, that have had a profound impact on our industry. Tonight, we're going to zero in on the history of transition cow management. For many years, the transition cow has been overlooked not receiving the focus or attention we now know she needs to maximize production and efficiency in the next lactation. Tonight, we're bringing together three icons in transition cow management, representing decades of experience and knowledge. Their collective history will allow us to look at the past, present, and future of transition cow research. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts tonight here at the Real Science Exchange. Our first guest joining us at the pub tonight is no stranger to our discussions. In fact, all three of our special guests have joined us uh, this past year for either a real science webinar or they've been part of a real science exchange. Uh, Dr. Rick Rummer, welcome to the exchange. Um, Our listeners may have heard that you've had some health challenges recently, but I understand that you're on the road to uh, full recovery. I sure am, Scott. I uh, was diagnosed about two years ago a little bit more than two years ago with a rather aggressive form of bone marrow cancer, uh, which required me to go through a bone marrow transplant, which was done, and it all went very well. And today I'm as healthy, I think, as anybody else. Um, Feeling great, and it's great to be alive, and I feel very blessed to be alive. Oh, that's great. Great news, Rick. Uh, Looking forward to seeing you here in the not-too-distant future. The lack of here is not due to any current chemotherapy or anything. It's just my COVID, COVID hairstyle. Yeah, I understand. Mary's a very nice barber. Yep. She does a great job of putting the clippers through it. Yep. So I don't need to ask you what's in your uh, glass tonight. I've seen you order these many, many times. Uh, so many, in fact, that we have lovingly called it a grummertini. So can you kind of walk us through um, how you'll go about uh, uh, ordering a grummertini? Well, in the days of, of going out a lot into restaurants, I would order a tangere martini, tangere meaning a gin martini, up, that means without ice cubes, shaken and poured. I'd order it dirty, which means a little bit of olive juice. And I'd order the dirt on the side so I could put it in myself. And uh, it, was, it was an ordeal to get one of these ordered, but it's a great drink. I've simplified it now in in retirement. It's basically a couple ice cubes and a little bit of gin and olive juice. That's excellent. Yeah, it used to take you quite a while to order those and a couple trips back and forth from the bar for the uh, bartender to get them right, it seems like. But uh, we're going to we're going to take and put that recipe in the show notes so that if you want to make one at home, uh, you can certainly do that. Rick is joined by Dr. Jesse Goff. Jesse, what's in your glass? And can you tell us any stories about how you met Rick? Well, margarita, nothing special. Whatever's cheapest on the store shelf. (laughs) How did I meet Rick? Uh, Well, where we really got to know each other was on the 2001 NRC committee. And uh, he and I both did the transition chapter there and worked on various other chapters together and then apart. Um, That was probably the start of it. And we became, actually the whole committee really became pretty good friends with each other. It's something uh, 
they should have charged me tuition. I learned, learned more in that three years than I did in all school as far as nutrition goes. Hmm. Very nice. Now, for those of you that are watching on YouTube, uh, you might notice that both uh, Dr. Grummer and Dr. Goff have the same background. That's because they are together right now at this very moment, broadcasting from Rick's uh, bar in his basement, and they're actually sitting side by side. So I understand, Jesse uh, and Rick, uh, you were going to do some fishing today. Did that, in fact, happen? Not yet. Not yet. Yeah, well, it took me a little longer to get up here, and I made a couple of we, we just chatted. Yeah, we've reminisced for a little while, and, and we're going out immediately after this. So <laughs> All right. we're, anxious, we're anxious to get out there. All right, very well. The name, of the, bar, the name of the bar, by the way, is Ed's Crappie Hole. And that's because if you look over my shoulder here, there's a mounted crappie, and that crappie's name is Ed. Oh. And Ed, Ed was caught when my daughter was 13, and it was a rather nice one. So my father mounted it for my daughter. So, so okay. that's, that's why we're down here at Ed's Crappie Hole. And my guess is your daughter named Ed. My daughter named it Ed, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Great. Um, our third guest tonight is Dr. Heather White. Heather represents the next generation in transition cow research and will carry on the work started by Drs. Grummer and Goff. Heather, welcome back to the pub. You were one of our first guests on the exchange when we started this back in 2020. Uh, what are you drinking tonight? Do you have any favorite stories about uh, Rick or Jesse? Well, thanks first for having me back. I'm having a whiskey old fashioned, so uh, making sure we represent Wisconsin well here, although I'm not at the cottage with Jesse and Rick. Um, I first met Dr. Grummer, the esteemed professor, when I was in graduate school, um, and we had went through a lot of the research uh, that he had done, and I met him at a conference and felt just so uh, proud of myself that he talked to me, just a random young grad student, um, and really made an impression on me then. But I got a chance to work with him quite a bit more after I came to Wisconsin as faculty through research collaborations, I worked with them quite a bit. I uh, haven't gotten to work with Jesse as much, as closely, or on any NRC committees, but maybe there's still time for that. Mm, excellent. And finally, my trusty co-host, Dr. Clay Zimmerman is able to join us. Clay, uh, did you mix up any martinis for tonight's occasion? I did not. Not tonight, Scott, sorry. Yeah, uh, you're driving and on I've vacation, actually. Yeah, I've been driving all day, so. Scott, what's, what are you drinking tonight? So tonight, um, you know, one of our guests on a previous uh, pubcast uh, ordered Heaven's Door. And I don't know if you can see this, but it's, it's inspired by Bob Dylan. And the, the decorations on the front of the bottle here is inspired by uh, Bob's um, uh, artwork. Uh, Heaven, he's an artist now. Who knew? But anyway, uh, it sounded good. I got it. And I, I can tell you, I would recommend it. It's, it's an excellent pour. So would recommend that. Um, to get us started tonight, Rick, let's get right into it. Can you share a bit of the history behind uh, Transition Cal Research? And, and where was it uh, when you first started out um, in your career? If, if you actually looked over my publication list, I, pr I probably have one that's most cited, which is a review. And in that review, I stated, stated the transition period is three weeks prior to calving till three weeks post calving. 
That's nothing I created or invented or started. But for some reason, everybody, when they start by saying, well, the transition period is such and such, they cite that paper. So it's, it's kind of nonsense that, that that is the case. But, but when, I, when I started in this, I, I think we understood that this time when the cow would go from the dry period to lactation was, was one of tremendous change and one of tremendous stress. And probably the mineral people were, were ahead of us in, in investigating milk fever rather than the more organic or lipid-related diseases. I, I think at the time I came into it, a lot of emphasis was not on the transition cow per se as starting before calving. A lot of the emphasis on the protein and energy side was actually on the postpartum cow. And so we would hear many, many talks given about feeding the early lactation cow and how critical it was to, to feed that early lactation cow correctly. And, and not much emphasis was given on, well, what about prepartum? And again, maybe the exception would be, would be the milk fever story. So, so it was a little bit uh, raw as far as what, what was going on prepartum. There was some acknowledgement that we, we needed to adapt the rumen microorganisms to, to grain. And so there was the, the message to maybe start feeding that cow a little extra grain before calving or to, to steam her up so that the bugs would get acclimated to the, the higher starch load and the higher acid production that came with that. But, but beyond that, there wasn't really a lot talked about. And again, most of the emphasis was on the early lactation cow. So you talked a little bit uh, about, you know, you set the parameters 21 days before, 21 days after. How, how again did you set that? And, and, and if you were to do that again, what would you set the, those days at? You know, again, it's not, it's not really something I set, but I, I think those parameters are really set by the biology of the cow and the physiology of the cow. And, and really it's a, a period in which the, the changes start to occur pre-calving in, in really quite dramatic fashion. And, and same thing, I think, post-calving, maybe we talk about 21 days, maybe it could be 28 days. But again, it's that's when the major challenge is from an, an energy deficit standpoint. So I think from a physiological standpoint, that's a, a pretty appropriate time period. I, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think it's probably still pretty close. So, so if a 21-day transition period is appropriate pre-calving, do we need a 60-day uh, dry period? Well, that's, you know, that's um, a good question. Um, you know, there's there's a certain concept that, you know, when we, we dry a cow off, she needs a rest of, of again, probably maybe four weeks, six weeks, whatever. and um, you know, I never quite understood that physiologically, why, why the cow needs a rest. Um, clearly, there's been some research looking at shortening the dry periods, and, and we were fairly involved with that. And maybe one of the disappointments in my career that more of that wasn't adopted, because I think we showed fairly clearly, along with others, that especially cows that are, are going through their second dry period, that they can 
they can get by just fine with a 30-day dry period. But but that 60-day dry period has been entrenched entrenched in people's minds for a long time, and that that was just a that was dogma, and it was a tough one to change. But personally, I feel that yeah, cows can can get by with a shorter dry period. Rick, just to be clear on that, but not not after the very first lactation, right? You're not you don't want that short right. dry period then, right? It have it have to be the second dry period. The first the first dry period, those cows react a little little differently, um, and they they seem to need a longer dry period. I think I think for that animal, probably forty five days is adequate, um, but they do seem to get shortchanged a little bit if you go down to thirty days with that kind of an animal. It's the more mature animals that are are really physiologically mature, so to speak, that that seem to be able to do just fine. But you know, the pe- people who who tried it many times said, "Oh, it didn't work for me." You know, it, and I and I think I think it gets down to the fact that if you give them a thirty day dry period, those that actually calve early, um, then they get a much shorter dry period, and and that that animal, you know, maybe, maybe suffers a little bit. And, and the thing you got to keep in count in the many studies that were done, all those animals were included in the data. So overall they're in the data set, but, but still people were reluctant to do it. I think people were reluctant to do it because it, it might cause a change in facilities. It changes your ratio of dry cows, the lactating cows. Um, there's just a, a lot of reasons I think that it didn't, didn't work out, but we, you know, we thought conceptually it was great. Yeah, you may you may chop a little bit off that peak lactation, but she gives it by extending her, her lactation and by by dropping that peak a little bit, you lessen the negative energy balance and and that has metabolic benefits as well as reproductive benefits. Mm-hmm. J- Jesse, what is what is your take on dry period length from your perspective? Well, I think Rick, Rick thinks he's disappointed because they haven't adopted it. Well, I, I think he'd be surprised to find that there are people who are adopting shorter dry periods, just not to the extent that down to 30 days. And, and I think what drives that in many ways, as he suggested, was space. But the other one is that the uh, days carrying a calf is, you know, plus or minus eight or nine days, depending on the breed. So if you shoot for a 30-day dry period, you're going to have some cows that are less than that. And seemed, and you, and you can correct me, seemed pretty clear that 30 days was kind of the minimum. If you drop much below that, you started seeing a bigger impact on milk. And so to make sure most of them are getting at least 30 days, you, I see a lot of farms going to 45 days, 42 days dry. Yeah, I think the counter argument there is that and there are some data sets and actually very large data sets dairy where that data is included. If, if a cow is programmed to dry off in 30 days, but it actually only has a 10 or 15 day dry period because it calves early, that data isn't called out. That data is actually in there. So, so that doesn't, that doesn't scare me off, but I, I can understand a dairy producer. If, if, if that producer has got a top cow that, peaked at you know 140 pounds in the last lactation and he tries giving her a short dry period and this time by gosh she only gave 110 well you know that concerns them that that that's a reason that they might say uh, I tried that and it, it doesn't work so 
you know, I understand the reluctance. It's it's okay. I'm not I'm not offended. You can't give a day back if a cow calves early, but you can manage the other end. So if you shoot for 45 days and one of them calves at 30, she's still good. If you shoot for 30 and she calves at 20, there's nothing you can do about it anymore, right? If you shoot for 45 and she goes long, there are some things you can do. So you can flag cows that had a 60 day dry period, 70 day dry period, and you can adjust management on the other end to avoid the repercussions of too long of a dry period. So there's a, a backup plan on that end, whereas there's, there's not necessarily a backup plan to recover that potential lost milk if it's too short. So maybe managing for something like 45 gives them more flexibility. This doesn't evolve into a, an hour discussion on dry period length because that's just... <laughs> <laughs> Had enough of that, huh? Clay, you were trying to say something there. I think you were muted again. I was I was asking I was asking Heather what what they're doing at the university right now, as far as dry period length. We still we still shoot for sixty, despite Rick's best efforts. Yeah, yeah. Rick sounds they, like they you want to change the subject. I was going. They never, gonna... to me. they never listened to me when I was on faculty. I don't expect them to start listening to me now. <laughs> Rick, let's change the subject and talk a little bit about fatty liver. I understand that some of your early research uh, was on fatty liver. Um, how did how did you get into that research? Yeah, that's that's a, a great great question. You know, I I came to the University of Wisconsin, and one of the things that you have to do is you have to start uh, innovative and independent research program. And so when I came to the university, one of the things that I was intrigued by was was fatty liver in, in dairy cows. And in graduate school, I'd actually studied lipoprotein metabolism as it relates to milk fat depression. So I had a pretty good knowledge of lipoprotein metabolism. And so when I started at the university, I thought, well, we got this cow and we know that she's susceptible to fatty liver you know, at, at that time, we thought shortly after calving. And um, I thought, well, what's what's the issues? One is that we have a high rate of NIFA mobilization and uptake by the liver. And we know that occurs. So that's part of the problem. But the other side of the equation is what about getting fat out of the liver? What about exporting it? And so I thought nobody's really a, approached the problem from that end. Well, I was very fortunate to come to university and, and a colleague of mine, Lou Armentano, was a year ahead of me in, in being hired. And, and he and his first graduate student had, had started to develop a, a cell culture system. So, so my first graduate student, I, I actually went to Lou and I said, hey, you know, could we work together with your graduate student and, and use the cell culture system to study fat export out of the liver? And he, you know, he was gracious and said, sure. And so we did that. And uh, my first student, Barry Kleppe, um, who's now a veterinarian, he started and I said, well, Barry, the first thing you have to do is you have to culture liver cells. And and I said, you know, work with Lou's student, Bob Aiello. And, and so he did that and he, he took these bovine liver cells and he came back and he said, boy, I can get him to take up fatty acids from the media, but but they're not putting anything out. And I said, well, keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. And he did and he failed and he did and he failed. He couldn't get him to, to export fat out of the liver. 
So I said, well, go down to the eighth floor with a physiologist and get a rodent and try culturing some rodent liver cells and, and see if you can get it to work. So he went down and they were working with guinea pigs. And so he cultured guinea pig cells and same thing. He, they'd take up fat, but they wouldn't export fat out of the liver. I said, well, keep trying, you know. Well, first, first, major professor, first, first students, you know, try harder, right? Work longer, more <laughs> hours, right? Well, finally, he comes on, plops on my desk a paper that that documented that guinea pig liver cells aren't very capable of exporting fat. They're just not good at it. They're very slow rates of exportation. So then we thought, huh, maybe that's the issue. And so sure enough, uh, we documented that ruminant, and we actually started with goats then, and ruminant liver cells did not export fat out of the liver at a very high rate. And uh, so that really started my intrigue on, on fatty liver. Um, the, the, the big question at that point in time was, well, why aren't these cells exporting fat out of the liver? And I used to tell my students, well, I think of it Think of it as a, as a car. If a car doesn't run, why doesn't it run? Well, two possible reasons. There's something wrong with it mechanically or it's out of gas. So I told him, well, I think this is mechanical. I think, you know, there's some gene that isn't there being expressed and they just can't do it. Um, it's certainly not that they're out of gas because we're giving a media with all sorts of nutrients and there can't be anything possibly limiting. And sure enough, I was wrong on that one too, uh, as, as determined at a later date that there probably is limiting nutrients. And I, I won't give a shameless plug here, but you know, we ended up, you know, finding out that at least it seemed like choline might be able to to prevent or, or alleviate fatty liver. And of course, interesting, interestingly enough, Lou and myself gave up working with with hepatocytes altogether because you know, it was it was very expensive. About every other graduate student couldn't couldn't do it, and we were sacrificing calves, and you know that's not always fun. And and so we both just dropped it. And lo and behold, Heather White was trained by one of Lou's former students, and so she came along years later and resurrected the the procedure, and she's done a wonderful job of continuing work on hepatic metabolism using that cell culture system. For the record, those same challenges still exist. Yeah, about 50% of the students can do it about. and 50% can. Yep, and it's still expensive and it's still <laughs> challenging, yep. Yeah. Well, Heather, that's a great segue. Why don't you just fill us in a little bit on what you're doing with your liver cell work? Yeah, for me, it's it's a model, it's a tool. So it doesn't replace doing cow studies, but it gives us really incredible insight into mechanism, like Rick talked about. How is it how is it happening? What's the machinery? What's the genes? What are the proteins that are involved? And we can put, you know, huge factorial studies on cells that would take thousands of cows and, you know, way too many liver biopsies. And so it gives us a lot of ability to manipulate treatments and see what's going on. And then that information informs either what we do in a cow study, maybe it helps us narrow down treatments or treatment combinations, or it can help explain what's happening in the cow back to the mechanism. So if we keep seeing something in a cow, whether it's a change in milk composition or a change in liver lipids or any of those 
Um, you know, sometimes it's really hard to get at how that mechanism is happening in the cow when every animal's eating a different amount and has different genetics and all of these things. So we can dig into that uh, more closely in a cell culture model. So we've used it to look at methyl donors, choline, methionine. We've used it to look at fatty acid treatment combinations where we can put the fatty acids together in combinations that mimic the NEFA in the cow, whether it's prepartum or postpartum, and then look at gluconeogenesis and oxidation of fatty acids and triglyceride export and other pathways. And so that's been a key part of complementing cow studies in my research program. And ironically or coincidentally, we do do the surgery in the same sink that Rick and Lou did. And we use the same cell culture room, although it has been uh, renovated since then, thankfully. Um, but it, there is a lot of history there. So, Jesse, as a veterinarian, what's been your experience with fatty liver and transition don't cows? Get don't get it. You don't Sorry. get it. <laughs> Great advice. I don't know. We, you know, uh, in the United States, we had such a, a different form than what was in all the veterinary textbooks, which was all based on European literature that described a different type of ketosis that was readily treatable by a bottle of glucose and put more grain in their diet because most of those were in grazing situations. And the cow went on her merry way. And that's what was in all the vet textbooks until probably the seventies when uh, some folks at Iowa state and then Rick and a few others started seeing all this fatty liver develop so quickly in the cow. And it seemed now we can argue about whether there truly is a separate type for the United States, but it seemed like our ketosis was occurring much faster and was much less amenable to treatment. Is that just simply because they were mobilizing more NEFA in, in our systems? Well, I, I, I think it was a, I mean, I think the, the dogma was that NEFA mobilization was, was maximized post-calving. And, and people thought, well, you know, it gets worse as energy balance gets worse. And that it was a, an event that happened, you know, 7, 10, 14 days post-calving. And I think one of the things that really brought the disease into focus was the observation that, that the elevation in NEFA and the most extreme elevation occurred on the day of calving or at calving time. And that this was a part of the normal physiological process of calving. Um, she goes through endocrine changes that are conducive to fat mobilization. And so Basically, that spike in, in NEFA comes right at calving. And when I got into this business, you know, fatty liver was a postpartum disorder. Well, it's it's there, you know, and, and it can develop in 24 to 48 hours. And that NEFA spike at calving can can cause it. So and and that sort of what changed our emphasis of, well, OK, if it's happening at calving, let's let's go back and look at what we can do prior to calving to, to try to minimize that, that effect. And so I think part of it was just learning more about the physiology of the cow and when certain events were happening. Yeah. It seemed, it seemed like prior to that study and that's that vast Kessanon study that Rick's 
Um, prior to that, I think we were all in this mode that the NEFAs were accumulating slowly as the animal went more and more into negative energy balance. I don't. I think that paper reset the table as far as how this was occurring. That it really was something definite about the day of calving and right around the time of calving, this cow reacted differently than she would later. And oh, correct me now. I remember uh, Jerry Young did some studies where they went out to like two weeks and uh, starved cows, and they didn't get fatty liver. Yeah. And uh, but if you starved them on day one or one or so they got terrible fatty liver. So there was something different about the way they were metabolizing those fats. Did I get that right? Am I thinking? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right that, that he went several weeks past calving and tried to feed restrict animals and induce fatty liver and couldn't do it. Um, that, that spike in NEFA is, is actually what led us to what we call the stuffing experiment. And, and I thought, well, that, that that peak that's occurring at calving is because of well, gee, on that day of calving, these cows are hardly eating, you know. So yeah, that probably makes sense that the nephas are going through the roof. And so, so we took fistulated cows and we force fed them and didn't allow them to go off feed, but the spike in nepha still occurred. So that that told us that it was something inherent in the physiology of parturition that contributed to it. Now that being said. My colleague, Lou Armentano, still tells me that that study should have never been published. And, and the reason why is we had two groups of cows, one group that we allowed to go off feed and another group of cows that we force fed through the rumen fistula. Well, Lou says, the cows that you allowed to go off feed, were they fistulated? And I said, no. You know, oh, oh, you're confounded. That, that study should have never been been published. Yeah, I guess he's you know like always Lou is right. Um, but but Lou, I, Lou I, wasn't going to do the surgery on twelve more cows. Was but it? my my defense was that that we at the University of Wisconsin and I had I hope it's still the same way. We did not discriminate by genetic ability to produce milk or how fancy the cow looked, whether she got official or not. <laughs> you know, it was. It didn't matter whether you're a beauty queen or whether you made a ton of milk. If if you were needed for an experiment, you got fistulated. So, any anyway, he's correct from a strict standpoint. Then probably should have never been published. Hmm. While we're on uh, talking about nutrition, Jesse, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the work that you've done? I, I I know that you're known for doing work with uh, milk fever. Can you tell us a little bit about your work? Um, you're looking at probably the luckiest guy around. I worked with some really good people and uh, had the opportunity when I was with USDA to try crazy things. So uh, unbeknownst to most people, the DCAD story actually started uh, back in the 19, late 1940s with a couple of American veterinarians who were riding the hillsides of Pennsylvania and uh, most, most at that time, a lot of cows that got milk fever, maybe 25 to 30% would get what's called a relapse to milk fever and have milk fever the next day. And you'd have to be back and treat them again. Well, they were running around the, the uh, countryside with an organic acid. Now, it's like this big, the name. But uh, they were using that to acidify the cows after they gave the first bottle of calcium. 
and they never had to go back for a relapsed milk fever. The problem was it took this much to uh, to to do that treatment. It took this much to kill them. It was, mm. it was pretty potent stuff. But uh, they were on the right idea, but nobody recognized. And then the Norwegians, uh, Inger Dishington and her group uh, had some AIV silage, which most Americans have no idea what that is. Arturo Ivertanen, he won the Nobel Prize in uh, sometime in the mid-30s for developing the silage. In uh, the Scandinavian countries, you can't grow a high sugar content grass and you don't have the luxury of drying it out in the sun very much. So they're making haylages by pouring hydrochloric acid and sulfuric acid onto the forages. And then when they got done, they needed to feed it to some cows and Inger Dishington was uh, smart enough to notice over time that the cows that got AI, AIV treated silage, grass silage, they didn't get milk fever. And uh, they were using these Norwegian red and whites, which are Norwegian reds, which have a lot of milk fever and Swedish red and white, which have a lot of milk fever. So she came to America in 1971 and presented that research. And you, you can still read the papers. But uh, my major professor was a fellow named Travis Littledike, and he was at that meeting, and he came back and he says, "You guys got to, we got to try this." And I was a new graduate student, and this was 1978 when he said, "We got, you got to try this. Um, this is a, an approach we need to think about." We put that stuff in front of cows and could not get them to eat it. That cow go for four days thinking she'd eat it; she would not touch it. And uh, so that kind of killed the whole idea. We could never get the cows to eat it. But uh, Inger Dishington got it to work. She had almost everything right about how it was working, uh, how to get it done. I think, and this is a sad commentary, this may be where I need to get another drink. Um, <laughs> Inger was a woman in Norway, and uh, she did this study. It was scientifically very great. Um, so to reward her, what they did was put her in charge of the microbiology department at the veterinary college. And she never touched nutrition again. And uh, the, the good news is that when we started getting all that stuff done, she was in a nursing home. And one of my colleagues went to visit her and tell her, oh, these guys in America, they're using your idea all over the place. And apparently she was quite quite thrilled to hear that. She was in her 90s by then. But So what did I do? <laughs> I don't know what I... We started trying to figure out ways to get cows to eat anions. And when we could get them to eat it, there was no doubt about it. It prevented milk fever. And I was very lucky to have uh, Jim Miller of Tennessee help us out with a couple of grad students, Paula Gaynor and, and Fran Muir. And we all worked together to try to prove how this was working and learned that it accelerated vitamin D metabolism, it accelerated bone calcium release, and then uh, we started looking at acid-base balance. So probably my big contribution was trying to figure out acid-base balance in the cow and how to manipulate it and why feeding certain salts did certain things, um, and then trying to define where you wanted to be in terms of acidity to to make the hormones work. And it turned out parathyroid hormone uh, became inactive when cows were alkaline. 
and you just needed to get them out of an alkalotic state and all of a sudden the hormones work. It turns out the receptors are take on a poor shape, which was not unheard of. Insulin that was known the other way. Uh, people have diabetic ketoacidosis when they go in the hospital. You can give them all the insulin they want. You, their blood glu glucose can be 500 uh, milligrams per deciliter. Give them insulin, nothing happens. But if you first treat the acidosis, in this case, you're treating acidosis, give them sodium bicarbonate IV, then you give them insulin, their blood sugar comes right down. So this idea that acid-based physiology manipulated hormone receptors was not novel, but maybe the idea that we applied it to the cow was somewhat novel. I, 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 uh, I strongly feel that uh, I'm just very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time, and I had uh, good guys around me to help me. Rick, um, I know that you've done a lot of nutritional research in transition cows. I've heard you give a, a few presentations, one of which was called, as I believe is called uh, insulin resistance, friend or foe. Talk a little bit about um, the Goldilocks diet in that, in that talk. What would you say are some of the key takeaways from, from those discussions? That, that talk was actually created. You, you may not remember this, but, but you guys approached me whether I'd give the breakfast Cornell presentation at Cornell. And at, at that time, there was such an anti-NEFA movement that was going on. And part of this was generated by the Goldilocks movement that you got to feed this diet to minimize fat mobilization. Part of it was caused by the hepatic oxidation theory that if you get too many fatty acids going to the liver, it depresses feed intake, et cetera. And I just, I just got to the point where I said, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. Um, you know, NEFAs are pretty important. This is, this is part of the homeoretic mechanism of the cow to, to bring from the reserves to support lactation at a time where the, the cow's just not consuming enough energy. And, and if you take away NEFA and you get too extreme with that concept, you're going to have a downstream effect on, on milk production. And through a summary of studies, I, I think that, yeah, that is probably the case. If, if you do some of these methodologies to suppress NEFA, that there's going to be that downstream effect on, on lowering milk production. So I was, I was purely trying to play the devil's advocate when I gave that talk. It was when I thought I was going to retire for good, I didn't. But I, you know, I thought that was one of my, one of my swan presentations. Um, so I, I kind of, you know, just went out and said, "Hey, here's the opposite side of the, the viewpoint on that." And uh, you know how it plays out, I don't know. So it, and that's probably where we can have Heather join in. I, you know, I'm I'm convinced that there is a trade-off. Um, that occurs and that sometimes you you kind of have to choose choose what you want and and there are some dairy producers and there are some I would say countries that really emphasize health of the cow and minimizing any sort of problem and you know you go over to 
countries like the Netherlands and, and Denmark, whatever, you know, they're eight to five. And when they go to bed or go in for dinner, they don't want to go back out to the barn. And I, you know, I understand that. That's, that's reasonable. But I just, the takeaway message that, that I have from that is, okay, if, if you're going to go, that is your emphasis, you might sacrifice a little bit on milk production. Maybe if you, you try to maximize milk production, you may, you may suffer some of the potential consequences of high NEFA. Um, so, so it's maybe a choice thing. And, you know, I've been, I've been out of the, the circulation now because of a health issue and COVID for two years. And when I agreed to do this, I said only, only if Heather White can be part of it because she needs to, first of all, correct us old farts because, you know, Sometimes we get set in our minds and ways and, and, and get pretty close-minded as, as well as give an update on where the, the status of things are. So I'd, I'd appreciate Heather's comments. And, and Heather, give us, give us a lowdown on what you think, where it's at now, or where it's going to go in the future. Yeah, I remember the introduction to that talk. I believe it went something like this. Rick was handed a microphone. He said, they told me I could talk about whatever I wanted and I'm about to retire. So here it goes. <laughs> and he laid it all out. And I, I think it's, as Rick said, his goal was to be the devil's advocate and to challenge the dogma. But while sometimes that's what we need to do, right? It's just to think about uh, just because we, we've learned it, just because it's what's in the, the notes or the reviews or the textbooks doesn't mean that it is fact or it is always going to be that way. So um, that's one thing that I appreciate as challenging dogmas sometimes. So I agree, you can go too far with anything, right? Everything in moderation. And I think NIFA is an example of that. If we take it away completely, as challenging as that is to do, but if we take it away completely, we really limit the liver's ability to do what we're asking it to do right then, which is to make energy and glucose when it doesn't have its typical fuel sources. And so the liver's relying on NEFA a lot, as are other tissues. What I think is really interesting now is we're getting to a point where we're finding out that it's not just about the total of NEFA. It's not just about how much fatty acid is there, but more specifically, it's about the profile of fatty acid. Okay, so that's all well and good, but if it's about the composition of fatty acid and the amount, then can we manipulate the concentration? And can we manipulate not just how much is there, but can we manipulate what the profile of those fatty acids are? And we know, you know, like Rick said, this is mobilized fat. Okay, so how do we manipulate that? Well, can we, can we do something different in the late lactation period so the cow has stored a different fatty acid profile, so she's mobilizing different fatty acids? Or nutritionally, can we feed something different so that what's in circulation is a different profile? And I think that there's two sides of this that we're still pushing forward. One is understanding how to manipulate the fatty acids that are in the blood. And the other is what is the impact of those fatty acids, especially the bioactive and the functional ones on gene expression in the liver and the mammary gland and adipose and muscle. And if we understand both sides of that, can we put them together so that we can intentionally regulate things that lead to better outcomes? And so I think that we've figured out NIFA is good. We need some of it. We don't want extreme cases, but more importantly, uh, the composition of that NIFA could be used to our advantage if we can further our understanding there. So 
I've enjoyed working in that area because we still don't know all the answers there. And I think that we can, we can push further still. So, um, and some of the fatty acids have bad impacts too, right? Some of them are inflammatory and some, uh, you know, we can talk about milk fat depression, but we can also talk about regulation at the tissue level. Um, and so I think that there are a lot of different nuances to that. So Heather, do you think, uh, do you think we need to look at manip manipulating uh, fat during the dry period? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, that might work. I actually tend to think late lactation would be our better chance at manipulating it because that's when she's going to uh, try to replenish some of those adipose stores. We don't really want her to accrete a lot of extra body condition during the dry period, so I'd avoid overfeeding it then. Um, so, you know, I've got some interest in looking at can we intentionally influence it in late lactation um, and and see if we can do that. Do you have some insight into what specific fatty acids you'd like for her to store? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> no, we, we have done some, but uh, some of the fatty acids that we know regulate different genes are not the fatty acids that she would store. So those will have to come from dietary sources. Some of the unsaturated, polyunsaturated fatty acids, longer chain, uh, those aren't the fatty acids she's going to store. So we might need to give those through a nutritional intervention. Uh, so it's, I think it's complex. It also depends on how you mix them, because if you give just one of them, use a cell culture model, for example, if you give just one of them, you don't get the same reaction as if you give two of them, but the two of them have to be in the right proportion. So it's about figuring out which one you want to spike in, in essence, which ones you want to increase relative to the others. Uh, but you still have to have that background profile there to elicit the response in most cases. You know, it, it'd be remiss if we didn't uh, discuss immunology. And I'll, I'll throw that to you, uh, Jesse. What can you tell us about some of the work that you've done and maybe the future of where uh, immunology is going or needs to go uh, as it relates to the transition cow? Well, again, this is a, another topic that really only surfaced in the mid 80s. And, and a couple of colleagues, Mark Curley and, and Jim Roth and Brian Nonicky, actually got in on this and described this uh, diminution of immune function around the time of calving, beginning about 10 days, two weeks before they calved. And usually didn't recover till two weeks after they calved. So cows were immune suppressed. Since that time, I think uh, certainly our group showed the uh, effects of calcium on that. We tried, we actually tried to do Rick's stuffing experiment to put a cow back in positive energy balance to see if we could manipulate that uh, immune system. And turned out whatever we did with negative energy balance was undone by other issues with the cow. So negative protein balance, poor calcium, uh, all these things are contributing to an animal who, who's immune suppressed. And now there's uh, talk of how this cow may be in an inflammatory state and that we need to start talking about toning down that immune system. So it's important to have a ramped up immune system when the cow first encounters a bacteria, virus, or whatever else it might consider a pathogen. But after that, it's supposed to ramp down. And when it doesn't ramp down, that's when you get a lot of tissue damage. So we had, we had noted as part of our work how uh, something as crazy as retained placenta 
was actually a manifestation of a poorly functioning immune system. Until that time, I think most people were stuck on the idea that there's hormonal imbalances, which there may still be, but certainly there's something about a poorly functioning immune system that's associated with this uh, failure of the fetal membranes and the maternal membranes to separate. And then this carries on down the road. Cows that were in negative energy balance had more risk of developing metritis. And uh, that was also linked to poorly functioning neutrophils and, and uh, particularly the neutrophils, but even the lymphocytes to some extent. So this whole area of immunology, um, number one, it's extremely, extremely frustrating to work in because the assays that are being used to assess animals' function are really untested. Is that the right word? They're just not what we Finic hoped they would be. Finicky. And then finicky. And even when you do them or you think you've done them correctly or you've done them repeatedly, <laughs> um, you're still kind of throwing up your hands in the air about what does it all mean. And so uh, challenge experiments are really what's needed, but they're extremely expensive to carry out. Um, we did a few of them. Um, that, that were published. And Mark, Mark Curley really led the way on this. Um, then he started all the experiments with granulocyte colony stimulating factor as a way to boost the immune system. That eventually became a product by Alanco, but apparently it's, it still needs some work on it uh, to make it in the field. But there's, there, are, there are some things that we're learning that will hopefully lead us to options to, to help treat the animal. And I, I think actually one of them is going to come out of this COVID epidemic, this idea that we can manipulate messenger RNA and use it as a way to boost uh, various immunological parameters, what we call cytokines, um, for a short period of time and boost the immune system at the right time. I think that's going to be a, a tremendously exciting future endeavor. It's, it's the one... I'm going to put it out here. Rick may disagree. I think it's the hardest nut to crack in in terms of fixing this transition cow. Energy is is always number one or two. Let's say that. Calcium, we got lots of tools to fix it. Protein, I think we're getting better at. Um, you know, keeping cows on feed. I think we've learned a lot better how to keep keep that going. I love Rick Grant's latest work with particle size and manipulating that to get another kilo of dry matter into cows. We, we got some tools. The, the immunology and negative energy balance are still kind of waiting for the, the thing that can really fix cows on farm easily. And I think it's further complicated because those two certainly interact with each other. So yeah, if, if there's an yeah. inflammatory state, then nutrient partitioning is affected and uh, fatty liver may persist and ketosis may not, might not be responsive to treatment. And we think that's confounded by immunological status. So then those two only make our job harder when they're both present together. So, yeah, we need it. We need a strong immune system when you go in. So I always, I always liken it to uh, attacking Iwo Jima, John Wayne, right? And so uh, if, if you've got a, got a small army and you send it up against the uh, – you send the, a small army and very likely you're going to get defeated. 
But uh, if you can send a large army in that's well-armed, you can defeat this, this beachhead right away. But once that beachhead uh, fails and, and the in invaders take hold, uh, it's very hard to get rid of them. And so this is where we see the chronic inflammation states that are, seem to be so devastating to the cow and guys like Barry Bradford and uh, uh, Bream Amitage are, are hitting us all the time with this idea that we need to suppress that immune system using aspirin or, or NSAIDs or other things and seems to have some benefits. So it's picking and choosing the right time to apply these things. Heather, the two gentlemen here on the screen with you, they've laid quite a foundation uh, for you to, to stand on, to work forward uh, from. Uh, and maybe I'll ask this question of all three of you. Um, what would you like to, to what, pass on to Heather and have her work on? Or, and, uh, or Heather, uh, to ask you, what do you see the future being? What, if you look into your crystal ball, what do you see needing to be done over the next 10, 15 years? Where do you want to start that? Should I say mine first or have them uh, lay out challenges? Let's, let's have these guys uh, lay out some challenges for you. You're a first big guy. Oh, well, first of all, the, pers the reason somebody becomes a faculty member at a university, especially post-tenure, is to have independence and to be able to do any darn thing they want to do. So I'm not, I'm not about to sit here and tell Heather what to do. She's, she's a very capable person to determine what, what the priorities are for the next 10 years. I, I would say that when Jesse mentioned we have tools for a lot of things, you know, calcium, milk fever, et cetera, you know, he, he brought up to the word protein. And I, I always said that if, if I had to go back to the university and, and start a research program, that's that's the one area that I would attack. Um, and and so maybe she can give an update on this. And I know it's not specifically your area, but to me, it just made very little sense that we we took this early postpartum cow, we put her into a negative energy balance. That that's always talked about. But what was seldom talked about was the, the protein imbalance, the negative protein balance that they go into. And, you know, with, with energy, we're handcuffed. You can't, you can't just keep adding fat or adding concentrate or whatever. You'll blow up the rumen. So, but we can, we can really effectively increase the protein content of the diet or the undegradable protein content or the specific amino acids in a protected fashion. So maybe as an update, where has that gone or has it gone anywhere? But that, I always thought that that was a fruitful area of research and, you know, it would have kicked me into kind of a new arena. But but that always intrigued me is, you know, why have, why have we kind of ignored that in the, the transition period? We've, you know, we've always talked about it, I think, with the, the lactating cow and the high-producing cow and meeting her requirements. But, but boy, that's a, a real protein imbalance that occurs there. But anyway, I'm not going to tell Heather where she should go. But that, if, if she would like to make a comment on that and where we stand on that now, again, I've been out of the loop. Thanks, Rick. 
Um, yeah, you're right. It's not my area specifically, but I do always make a plug when I'm talking about negative energy balance. And I try to remind folks that it's negative energy balance. It's negative protein balance, negative amino acids specifically, and negative nutrient balance. There's a lot of nutrients. You mentioned choline earlier. We talked about methionine, limiting amino acid, and it's not just about energy, even if that's the one that a lot of us focus on the most. And I think that we have made good progress doing a hone in on that to where we're now talking about how much metabolizable protein do we need to get post ruminal and how much of specific amino acids, which ones are limiting so that we can keep overall crude protein low so we can manage nitrogen waste, but we can more customize what the cow is getting in amino acid profile. So she is getting what she needs. So, a lot of great people working in that area. And I agree, it's it's still, we're far behind non-ruminants because they don't have the challenge of the rumen changing the amino acid profile, but we're making a lot of progress. Here's my editorial, which Rick is probably gonna slap me. But uh, the close-up cow, <laughs> the close-up cow diet, I think we've overanalyzed it. Oh, I agree. Cows, you do, you do. I absolutely do. We uh, we have got high energy diets. We've got low energy diets, and when they're managed right, they both work. I think the Goldilocks diet is probably easier to manage, but I'm not convinced that if you raise that energy a bit and you are a really good manager and don't overcrowd cows, because that never happens, right? And uh, if you don't overcrowd them and you're a good manager, you can make that high-energy diet work well and maybe get a little more milk. But in reality, that, that rarely happens. We worry so much about where calcium levels should be, where DCAD levels should be. We've got a pretty good idea where those should be and maybe shouldn't be. If I was a young guy today, what I'd worry about is that transition cow. Because I don't think if I feed her more protein or less protein in the close-up diet, I don't think she stores that protein and then can all of a sudden use it when she needs it during lactation. Um, I don't think there's labile pools. We need to supply it to her when she calves and for those first two weeks. So I go on a lot of farms and I see some farms that have a special fresh cow diet. And I always ask them and, 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 and uh, in my mind, that seems to make sense. We're going to feed a special diet to meet that special needs of that cow who's eating less feed. So what are we going to put in it? Well, what you usually see is that they added a lot more, not a lot, a few more pounds of forage and cut the grain because they're always concerned about displacement of the odd mason. And that strategy maybe helps with displaced abomasum, but... Are you really meaning the energy of the cow better or are you actually making it worse? And same with protein. If you're not upping the protein in that diet, um, negative protein balance is going to get worse. So I have these thoughts in my head about what I would love to look at, um, but I only got three cows at home. <laughs> you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I'll ever get this accomplished, but I think if I was a young person, I'd be looking at that fresh cow diet a lot more, or maybe maybe even eliminate it. Does it do it? Does it do anything for us? I, I mean, I, well, I'll, I'll first of all I'll agree with you hundred percent. I and I'll I'll take as much blame as anybody for 
shifting the gears to how we feed the cow pre-fresh is so absolutely critical. And, and I, I was a champion of that message. And it, it was all because, of, you know, there was a time where we just thought, wow, what can we do pre-partum to avoid these things postpartum? And, you know, the reality, I agree with it. That, that cow's, you know, she's, she's not real picky before calving with what, <laughs> what exactly you got to do. It, I agree. If I was going back to study, quote, transition cows, it would be that post-fresh transition cow. And what do we do during those first three weeks? So maybe, we, maybe we've come full circle. Because when I, when I started that, the emphasis was more on their early postpartum cow. The, the problem with the research back then is nobody wanted to start doing research with a fresh cow because these cows are, are horrible to work with. You're in a university setting. You have a limited number of cows that are available to your disposal. They're highly variable at that point in time, and variability means you need more cows for more power. So, so nobody wanted to deal with those cows. They did. So everybody would start their studies at three weeks post calving because wow, that's you know that's when they're peaking, right? That's when the big challenge is. That's when we really gotta focus our attentions. Well, that was too late. You know that was that was just way too late. And then again, I'll take the blame for swinging the pendulum to prepartum, but I, I don't disagree with you, Jesse, that I think I think we got to get more people to step up to the plate and run studies with cows from zero to three weeks postpartum and to get enough of them to have the statistical power to come up with some meaningful results. So I'll, I'll leave you with something that impressed the heck out of me as a young guy. Uh, Paul Chandler, who was a Tennessee for a long time, Virginia Tech. Um, he gave a talk to us veterinarians. <laughs> he said, you guys always make the mistake of studying the sick cows and trying to figure out what made them sick. And he says, what you really should be looking at is the cow who's making 40,000 pounds of milk and figure out what the hell's going right and uh, what they're doing right that you guys in research haven't figured out. And I, it always stuck with me is we were always focused on the broken cow and trying to fix her. And uh, I think about Paul Chandler's words a lot. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'll, uh, before you guys beat yourself up too much in your defense, we may have come full circle on this, but I would say that the circle is relocated. So you guys have shifted it. And what we did for pre-fresh diets 50 or 75 years ago is very different than our options now. So yeah, I agree completely. You can feed a Goldilocks diet prepartum and you can make it work. I also go onto farms that are feeding higher energy prepartum, higher body condition cows that some people don't like prepartum. And if you're a good cow manager, you can get a lot of fat corrected milk out of those cows and you can, you can have a really good herd. You can't ignore them because they, they have different needs than a cow that was on a Goldilocks diet. So I think that there are a lot of different strategies. So I agree. We've understand, we understand a lot more now and Rick, maybe we have come for full circle, but I think the circle's been shifted. So, uh, Jesse, one of the things you just hit on is one of the things that I would say is a big focus of mine moving forward, and that's maximizing what we can learn from the individual animal variation 
instead of considering it variants, that's a problem. That just means you need more animals. So we did a study not long ago where we challenged animals uh, prepartum with high energy and then postpartum at 14 days, we feed restricted them. And it's that classic model, you even referenced it earlier, let's try to induce it so we can study it because in the research herd, we don't have a lot of fatty liver and ketosis unless we do that. And you know the, the fun thing in that project is there were cows that weren't challenged that still got fatty liver and clinical ketosis. And there were cows that were challenged that were very resistant to it. It took us two weeks of feed restricting them and they still never got to the same level, level of clinical fatty liver, clinical ketosis that we expected. And I think studying those individual populations is really useful. So we need to have adequately powered size studies. We need to have enough cows to detect differences. And we need to be really cautious to remove cows because they don't fit the average or they don't look like the others. Cause I think those are the ones we can learn the most from. Um, so that's that study is something where we've been working on a while and it was a lot of fun to really dig into that. We did some RNA seq and some other things on that to, to really see how much we could get out of it. Um, the other area that I'm continuing to be excited about is beyond just energy protein focusing on nutrient partitioning and how we can specifically meet the exact need of the tissue at the time. So if we can feed something, not just at the level of, oh, I fed energy, but is it that it was propionate or that it was fermented propionate or that it's lactate or that it's a specific amino acid and shifting the nutrient partitioning so that we can influence how the tissue is using what's there. I think that's how we will influence feed efficiency so that the cow can make more with less waste and less input. And for a long time or, or several years, Lou was involved in the first round of this work and colleagues at other institutions were, other universities. We talked about feed efficiency in a mid-lactation cow and uh, we're still doing that. And I think that's where we have to start, but we can't ignore the transition period there either because I think there is a margin to improve her efficiency or at least be aware of it while we're trying to maintain her health and helping her reach peak. So that's something that I think will keep us going for a while as well. Hmm. Fascinating stuff. Uh, and I could do this all night long guys, but uh, they just called last call and you, you've guys got some fishing to do. So I, what I'd like to do is ask you guys to give us two takeaways uh, from tonight's discussion, two things that uh, a nutritionist, perhaps a dairy farmer, can take, uh, take home and use on the dairy farm today. Why don't we start with you, Jesse? Well, I get disappointed sometimes when I go on a lot of dairies, especially smaller dairies that will insist on treating cows for older cows for milk fever by giving a bottle of calcium to every cow. That's their preventative program. We have good tools, at least in that area that work. You have your choice of tools, Pick one of them and use it. Don't sit by and do nothing because that we've, there's plenty of research now suggests how much money you're leaving on the table. So that that's a simple one. Those smaller dairies. So what, that's a that's a depressing thought, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Heather, why don't you go next? Yeah, I'll use that as a segue instead of leaving it as a depressing thought. My takeaway is that our toolbox is full of options. So no matter what size farm you are, no matter what your management style is or what your access to resources is, 
there are options that are available to help, whether we're talking about milk fever, or ketosis, or management of pen size or, or pen moves, any of those things, there are a lot of options out there. And for me, it's really, if we use ketosis as an example, some farms have someone in the, the fresh pen every day and they don't mind taking a blood sample and running it on a cow side meter and that's how they manage it. Some farms don't have that and they'd rather do something nutritional that just keeps the prevalence low. And I think that our job from my perspective as researchers is to do things, to do research that can help answer questions, but then get tools out there that are varied in approach. So there should be an option for every farm to use to help improve whatever the challenges they're facing. Um, and not one answer is right for every farm, but if we keep studying a lot of varied approaches, then there's almost always something that can help, whether it's a prediction model, a tool, a nutritional intervention, there's some tool that fits the bill in most cases. Mm -hmm. Rick, final words. Wow. Um, I, you know, one thing that I heard over and over again as a faculty member was from dairy producers was that I don't pay, pay attention to that university research. It, it doesn't apply on my farm. It's, it's done under a you know, conditions that aren't like our, on my farm or commercial farms, et cetera, et cetera. And, and to a certain extent that, that that's true. Um, there are many times during the waning days of my career where I told people, you know, we're, we're never going to get these answers at the university because we just don't have enough cows and enough replication to get it done. And you're, you're going to have to you're gonna to have to supply the answer on your farm. And so one of my message to dairy producers would be, you know, keep an open mind to, to work and study your cows and observe your cows and try new things and see what works for you. The flip side of that is though, there are some things that you can't do on the farm that can only be done at the university. And so, make sure you are supportive of your university, supportive of the scientists like Heather White, so that they can, they can take the questions that you can't possibly answer and, and look at it perhaps on a more fund, fundamental level at the university. And, and don't scoff at that kind of research because that research is sometimes the foundation of things like DCAD, cation ion balance, et cetera. Um, so, so let's collaborate, let's work together. The only other message that I would say is that I had 26 great years at the university and left earlier than most people leave the cozy confines of the ivory tower. Um, but I think, I think the hiring of Heather White shows the merit in kicking us old farts off to the side, bringing in new blood, new thoughts, new methodologies, new techniques so that we can keep, keep research going and, and progress going. So Rick, uh, I've got one final question for you. Is it kind of reflect on your career? What kind of advice would you have for uh, other people as they're beginning their career or, or perhaps even in the middle of their career? What, what kind of advice would you have for them? I mean, the one thing that I think I successfully did in my career was admit when I was wrong. And, yeah. and that's something that I think all researchers need to do is they need to take a critical look at the totality of the data. And if, 
if their theory or idea or whatever, you know, ends up not being right or interpreted in a way that probably wasn't quite correct, innocent mistake. I mean, you know, I just, but just admit when you're wrong. I mean, that's. Well, and it might not even be a mistake. It's the best you could conclude at the time with the knowledge you had, but there's no reason to say, oh, I'm never going to redefine what I think is the new truth because, well, 10 years ago I published this and said this was the answer. We learn yeah. more every day. Well said. Heather, Jesse, Rick, it's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed having you guys here tonight. I've enjoyed the conversation, the camaraderie, uh, enjoyed hearing all about the history and I'm kind of excited hearing about the, the future that we have ahead of us. Jesse, you said that it's the forks in the road that lead to breakthroughs and I couldn't agree more. Um, you've all showed us that there are alternative paths to great discoveries. So thank you very much for that. And I'd also thank to, uh, like to thank our loyal listeners for uh, stopping by the Real Science Exchange once again to spend some time with uh, us here. Uh, if you like what you heard, please remember to drop us a five-star rating on your way out. Don't forget to request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt. You just need to like or subscribe to Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address the size of your shirt to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Our Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with the ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month. Visit balchemanh.com slash real science to see upcoming events and past topics. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. <laughs>